I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Next week, we'll be back in the Gospel of Mark, but for this morning, we are going to be in 1 Thessalonians. I've already mentioned it. Most of you know I was away this week at a pastor's conference. It's a week where I spent more time than normal thinking about us as a church, praying for God's will in us and through us. And when I take time to pray, I pray every week for us, but when I pray very intentionally for us, there are certain passages that I gravitate to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is one of those, so I spent time there this week. thought maybe we could spend time there this morning together. It's one of the passages that reminds me of the things that should be important to us as a church. So as we prepare to go to this text together, here's the question you can have in your mind. What does it look like for us as a church to be faithful? Something that I think about a lot is that God in his sovereignty has brought us together. And when I say that, I don't say it just generally, but each of us, each of you, we're here by God's design. We are here. There's some who aren't, but we're here. And God has brought us together. I won't name everyone's name, but he has brought us together for this season of our lives. And the question is, how should we use this bringing together? Say it this way. What does it look like for us to be good stewards of what God has done in bringing us together? Jesus says a lot about stewardship, doesn't he? About how we steward our time, about how we steward the things that have been entrusted to us. And there's, Jesus has hard words for those who don't steward well. Serious words for those who mishandle stewardship. So I hope you're with me. Saying, God, we want you to be pleased with the way you steward the opportunities that we have. Because you've brought us together. So what does that look like? What does it look like us for to, to not waste the opportunity that we have? Not the opportunity we want. We can look forward and say, if our church was like this, or if we had this, or if we had more people, or if we had a different people. No. This is what God, this is how he's designed us for this season. And the question is, how do we make wise stewardship of this? How do we not waste this? Because we are fools if we think because we're not that, that this doesn't matter. This friends, can't be wasted. That's what we're going to consider this morning from God's Word. Hopefully you have your Bibles open to 1 Thessalonians 2. Let me give you a little context. You're probably familiar with it. It's a, a, a letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Thessalonica. But it's not a stranger writing to strangers. No, Paul knows these folks. He, he loves them. We see that in chapter 1. Paul takes time to thank God for this church, and he rejoices over what God has done in them. 
And then as we come to chapter 2, he begins to reflect. He thinks back to the time when he was with them. And he thinks about that time that they spent together. And as he starts that reflection, he, he writes this verse that is just, it's this verse that stopped me about 10 years ago. I remember where I was, when I was, when I read it. We had those times, right? Verses we've read 100 times. And then all of a sudden, it just, you, you stop. This was one for me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. He's reflecting on the time he spent with the Thessalonians. He's remembering their time together, and he says, it wasn't in vain. Here's my translation. It wasn't wasted. That stops me. Because I have a question. Why was it not in vain? What happened with Paul and those people that made it worthwhile, not wasted? That's an important question because I want to be able to say that. I want us as a church to be able to say that our time together, the season for which he has brought us together, has not been wasted. So what happened? What was it that happened in Thessalonica that Paul says that was worth it? That's what we're going to try to answer this morning. Because he tells us about that season. What does it look like to have an unwasted ministry? I looked the word up. I wanted to make sure it was a word. I didn't make it up. Webster confirms unwasted is a word, so we're going to go with it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 12 verses. You follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. That's another version. Midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves. Because you would become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you who believe. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray that God would do his work through the reading and preaching of his word. Just a question again. What happened in Thessalonica that allows Paul to say that that ministry, that season, that time with that church was not in vain? What does unwasted ministry look like? We don't, we won't touch every word in the text, but I want to just tell you four things that I think Paul expresses, four characteristics of a ministry that is not in vain. And of course, my hope is that we would apply these things to the way we function together. First thing that stands out to me comes from verse two. Although we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. Now, let's get some context. If you ever want to know what was going on in Ephesus or Philippi or Thessalonica, you can go to Acts. Acts tells us a lot of the stories. Acts 16 is about some of the time that Paul spent in Philippi. And while he was there, there were some really high points And there were some pretty rough days. Actually, if you're reading through the plan right now, you'll be in Acts 16, I think, tomorrow. So here's a little help for you. In Acts 16, we read of a time when Paul was arrested, and then he was drugged into the town square naked. That's enough for a rough day right there. But not only was he drugged into the town square naked, he was beaten with rods, and then jailed. Why? Why was he stripped, beaten, and arrested? Well, it was all because he was proclaiming the name of Christ. He was speaking of Jesus as the way of salvation. Stripped, beaten, arrested because he proclaimed the gospel. We should ask ourselves, if you went to a city to proclaim the gospel, And as a result of what you did there, they stripped you, beat you, and arrested you. What do you do when you get out? Time for sabbatical, maybe, right? Paul goes to the next town. He writes to the Thessalonians, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Despite what happened, Paul goes to the next town and he does it again. At the risk of losing everything, he continues to preach the gospel of God faithfully. Now let's go back to our question. What does it look like to have an unwasted ministry? And don't hear me saying, what does it look like for me to have ministry to you that's unwasted? Although that's true, but let's think together. What what does it look like for us not to waste the opportunity that God has given us together? The example of Paul is that he continued always proclaiming the gospel without excuse. And it wasn't easy. It was not comfortable. It was not convenient. But he was faithful. And if we are going to be good stewards of what God's given us, this this is first. It's foundational. It's overarching. 
we must be faithful to the message of the gospel. Now, thankfully, Round Rock is different than Philippi. No one's tried to strip me or beat me yet. But we do live in a time and a place where the gospel is not as well received as it once was in Round Rock. Most people don't want to be told that they are sinners who need to be rescued from anything. Our faith, the gospel, points us to live God's way. But most people don't want to be told that there's a standard. At least not one outside of themselves. And if you've never felt the tension between what the Bible calls us to and the way most of the world is living, then you either haven't recognized the culture or you've not read your Bible very carefully. There's a tension there. And the question is, how are we going to respond as the world becomes more and more hostile towards our message? Will we recoil? Will we soften it? Will we adapt it? Or will we say with Paul, as he says in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Friends, if we want our lives and our church to be pleasing to God, we must not be ashamed. We must be committed to speaking the truth, no matter the consequences. And I think we are all saying, yes, yes, I want that, but are we bold like we should be? Or is there a sense of practical shame? Do you know the difference between professed boldness and practiced boldness? We must be faithful, and not just in this room. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't have fear of proclaiming the truth in this room. But do we take that outside? Are we faithful with our kids with our neighbors. Maybe we wave often, but we don't often walk towards our neighbors to have that conversation that could lead to an opportunity. Put this in your mind. Walk, don't just wave. Right? Walk towards someone. Have conversations that can lead to opportunities for the gospel. We all have people around us that on a Wednesday night, we will and do this. Say, can we pray for the salvation of? But friends, may we not be slow to speak. If we're not faithful with the gospel, then we have to be honest that we are not being good stewards of what God's entrusted to us. If we want to say with Paul that our ministry, our time, our opportunity wasn't in vain, that we must be faithful with the proclamation of the gospel. And it won't always be popular, but we must, church, be faithful. That's the first thing. We see in Paul's example, in an unwasted ministry, the gospel is proclaimed without excuse. We're going to get, we're going to start with big ideas and we're going to work our way to more specific ideas. Second, in an unwasted ministry, the approval and the glory of God are valued above the approval and the glory of man. So as Christians, we must strive to please God above pleasing men. Verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, he approves us, he entrusts us, 
It's from him. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God, because he tests our hearts. These verses get to the core of why Paul did what he did. Why would Paul take a stripping, a beating, and an arrest and get up and keep going? It's because his goal wasn't to please people. Paul's people. Paul is people, right? He's not doing it to please himself. He's not doing it to please others. He's doing it to please God. And again, this is the, the, the question that flows out of that. Who are we aiming to please? Whose glory are we pursuing? I want you to think, because some of us give in to temptation, we do things that we wouldn't do on our own because we feel the pressure from someone else. This happens in our workplaces, doesn't it? That doesn't feel right. But I feel that pressure from someone else to do that, right? And so we find ourselves pleasing people instead of pleasing God. We don't speak because we don't want to offend or hurt. And so in the effort to please a person, to make them feel comfortable, we pull back. We're tempted to be people pleasers, to care more about people's opinions than we do about God's opinion of us. And it shows up in all kinds of ways. Paul talks about some ways that we can fall into people pleasing in regards to the gospel. These aren't on your notes, but there's a few traps that he lists in these verses. The first trap is that we may be tempted to change the message of the gospel in order to make it more palatable. He says, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Paul's making this clear, that his proclamation of the gospel was pure. He spoke clearly, and he never changed the message to more, make it more palatable or socially acceptable. The gospel's central. We just read in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God. So if we want the power of God to go forth from us and to change people, then we can't change the gospel, right? I like the way Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's a big responsibility, isn't it? He says, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak Christ. He's saying, don't be dishonest peddlers of the gospel. Instead, speak it faithfully, speak it clearly, speak it fully, speak it truly. And of course, as we do that, we see right here in this passage, some will reject it. To some, the proclamation of the gospel will be death to death. Oh, but for some, it's the fragrance of life to life. Some will hear it and some will respond. Some will have faith and that is great news. But that only happens if we proclaim it, if they hear it. The temptation, however, is to soften it. 
So someone says, I, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, and that's great. And we just leave it at that. We are sure now that we've done our job because they gave a, a, a nod to Jesus, right? Instead of having real conversations where we can really understand where our neighbor or our friend or our family member stands in regards to the gospel. The first trap is this making it more palatable. The second trap is to use the gospel as a means of some kind of personal gain. Paul says in verse 5, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is witness. So we have this insight into the heart of Paul. The question had to be asked, Paul, why are you here? What are you trying to accomplish with us? And some may have suggested that his motivation was impure. That the reason that Paul came and was drawing crowds was for some kind of personal gain. Whether it be financial or a position of some kind. And that's, that's a common accusation, isn't it? For the church, for pastors. A lot of people are skeptical of us. They see pastors and churches as being out for money or something that they're going to gain. It's not a new accusation. Paul faced it. There were people who would question his motives, and so Paul defends his ministry. He says in verse 5, we were not motivated by greed. And then he not only says it, but he walks it out. He proves it with the way he lives. We see that in verse 9. He says, you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. Maybe you know this about Paul. He says it here, he says it in other places, that, that he did not accept payment from the church for the work of his ministry. Instead, he works another job to support himself and the work. He wanted to be very obvious that his ministry was not about personal gain. Now, I just want to say this. He's not advocating that this would be some kind of normative practice. There's other places where Paul says a minister should be able to live off the work of the ministry, fully dedicated to that work. But Paul made this decision for himself. He decided in his case he would do other work to support the work so there would be no questions about his motivation. For Paul, the work of the ministry was never about personal gain. But that's a trap. And you can define in your own context what that trap might be, how it would look. But for you to do things for the sake of the gospel that are actually for personal gain. Maybe status or reputation. There's a third trap. Verse 6. He says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So it's not about personal gain, financial, and it's not about position. We could be tempted to use the gospel to gain a following or a reputation. There's the desire to be seen by people. But the work of the ministry is not supposed to be about us. Paul says we didn't do it to receive glory from people. He preached not for the praise of men, but for the praise of God. And he guarded his heart from trying to please people. And I understand, Paul's speaking as a minister. The application here flows most easily to people who do things like I do, preaching. But all of us can be tempted to say things or to not say things for the sake of our reputation, for the sake of position. 
And what Paul is conveying here is the reason that his ministry wasn't in vain is because he wasn't held back by those things. He said what needed to be said. He spoke what needed to be spoken. So he says it wasn't wasted. Why would it be wasted? If he didn't proclaim the gospel fully, truly, completely, right? If he did it with selfish motivation or if he didn't do it with selfish motivation. We're stewards. Peter says it this way. I love this. Write this down as one to look, look at again later. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Man, I can't preach another sermon here, but I want to. Idea of varied grace. You have gifts that I don't have. And you're to steward the gifts that God's given you. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God, not the oracles of man. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's the point Peter's making? It's the same point that Paul is making. It's God's message and the glory should be his. We have a stewardship. This isn't on my notes. It doesn't happen often. But perhaps when we come together, we should be thinking, as we come through those doors, this is my stewardship, right? I've been given grace to interact with my brothers and sisters in a particular way. Let me steward that well today. If we want to have an unwasted ministry together, first of all, the gospel has to be proclaimed without excuse. Second, we must desire the approval of God above the approval of men. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. He says, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Here's the third thing. In an unwasted ministry, people love genuinely and live purposefully with one another. We should be characterized by compassionate and purposeful sharing of life. We see that in Paul's example. Yes, we have made it clear. I told you we're working from big principles to more on-the-ground principles. The big principle is this is for the glory of God. But Paul's motivation is not only the glory of God, although that's primary. His motivation is also love for people. He's motivated by a deep and genuine compassion. And he gave his life to those who he was serving. What we see here is the importance of relationship, the importance of doing life with one another. I think one of the great failures of our current American church is that we've made the church look and function in ways different from what the New Testament calls called us to. We've perpetuated the myth that the church is a building that we come to or a nonprofit organization that we support or a service we attend. You see how those things put the church out there, right? Instead of saying we are 
the church and we've been called to do things together. Instead, it's this organization that exists and we, we go there, we support that. But that's not the imagery of the scriptures, is it? What Paul's describing is a deep and personal relationships for the sake of the gospel. Here's an illustration that I've used before. You've probably heard it if you've been around for any length of time. But we, we can tend to treat the church like we would treat going to a movie. And, and here's what I mean. When we go to a movie, we choose the one we want to see. And the one that fits our schedule, it meets this time and not that time. And we go and we sit just with a couple of people who came with us. We're entertained. And then we leave. And we leave our trash on the floor, right? Maybe you don't. What happens in a movie is that we are affected by what happens, but it doesn't usually change our lives. We sit in a crowd of nameless faces and we laugh together, and we cry together, and we moan together, and we clap together, depending on the movie. But then we all just leave, and we don't care really what happened to the guy at the end of the row. We're never going to see him again. Theaters are full of strangers who enjoy shows together and leave as strangers. And this isn't against movies. It's just different, Right? We can be tempted to approach church in the same way where we come and sit and listen, yet never develop a genuine relationship with those around us the way God has intended. Some of us have exchanged a good gift for a place or an event or something that can be watched online. I'm going to say it, <laughs> right? It's more than that, isn't it? Being a part of the church is more. This isn't a content exchange. No, we've been called to love each other deeply and that means knowing each other. The church, according to God's word, is a people who have been set apart through Christ and who give themselves to loving him and sharing life with one another for the sake of the gospel. Every now and then I write a sentence I like. I'll say it twice. The church, according to God's word, is a people who have been set apart through Christ and who give themselves to loving him and sharing life with one another for the sake of the gospel. And if you're with us, I think it was last week, we talked about preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is not only proclamation for evangelism. When we say for the sake of the gospel, it means we need the gospel. So we live together and proclaim the truth of God to one another. Paul's relationship with the church is deep and personal. And we see a metaphor that, that helps us with that. He says, verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is how he describes his relationship to that church, like a mother nursing a child. Full disclosure, never done it. Not an expert on nursing. But I do have three kids, and so I have observed a lot of nursing. There's a few things that I didn't know before I observed it that I know now that I have observed it. I know I don't see my wife a lot. She's busy. Caring for a baby in that way is a selfless, sacrificial 
thing. It's demanding, and it's not always enjoyable. Yeah, and moms talk about the closeness. There's, there's benefits to it, but you get to week or month four or five, <laughs> this isn't happening because mom just loves it. She does it because it benefits her child. To nurse a child is selfless, and it's a picture of faithfulness. I had no idea before we had children that that was such a huge part of those months. What I've learned about babies is they're like me and that they like to eat all the time. What's different most of the time between a child and myself is I don't scream when it doesn't happen, but babies do, and moms are there. It takes commitment. It takes faithfulness. It takes selflessness. This metaphor of a nursing mother should remind us of deep, unconditional love and gentleness. We were gentle among you. It's hard to picture a mom nursing a baby harshly. (laughs) Gentle. Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that he came selflessly, not for what he could gain, but for, for what he could give. Nursing mothers don't get a break. And in the same way, Paul ministered faithfully. He says, I did it night and day. A ministry motivated by love and sacrifice. And again, this is something you could say, Matthew, serve us that way. Faithfully, selflessly, sacrificially, gently. And man, I'm going to try to. But can we broaden the application here and recognize that this is the way God wants us all to live towards one another? Selflessly, sacrificially, faithfully, gently, giving ourselves to one another, even when it's inconvenient. Paul says it this way in verse 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Strong language. Affectionately desirous. Add that to your, your, your vocabulary as you pray for one another. God, would you make me affectionately desirous? Affectionately, I should say. He doesn't say, I have nice thoughts about you. He doesn't say, I kind of like you. He doesn't even say, I love you. He says, I've become affectionately desirous of them, longing and desire to be with them. So much so, he says, I'm ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, and that's not minimizing the gospel. Remember points one and two. I'm going to give to you not only this content of the gospel, I want to give to you myself. Friends, we must give the gospel to one another. But let's not give only the gospel. Let's give ourselves to one another. This is the picture of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2. You read it last week, many of you. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. These weren't casual relationships. 
How are people saved? People are saved through the proclamation of the gospel. What does Jesus say that the people, I'm going off my notes again. People will know us by our love for one another. One of the ways we proclaim the gospel is through living this way together. And friends, I think we all agree, we want more people to know the gospel. We want people added to our numbers for the sake of their souls and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. This happens in part when we love each other well. Live the way that God has called us to together. We read in Corinthians this metaphor of the body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor does the feet say to the head, I have no need of you. Every part of the body has a role to play. We've been brought together, right? And we all have a stewardship. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That only happens if we know when one another are suffering and if we know when one another are rejoicing. And we only know those things if we live Acts 2 kinds of lives together. As a church, we don't come together only because we have a shared theological statement. And we don't exist primarily because we have a common creed. We exist because God intends for his people to live together in such a way that we not only share the gospel of God, but our own selves for the sake of the gospel. And if I'm being honest, there have been times in the life of our church when we have done this better then we're doing it right now. We can do a better job of investing in one another and caring for one another. And some of it's not hard. Some of it is just being here and maybe a little bit before so we can have a conversation and maybe just a little bit after so we can have a conversation. It means making time to pray for one another throughout the week. It means making time to be with one another. If we ever want to look back at this year and other years and say it wasn't wasted, part of not wasting it is investing in one another, stewarding what God has given us, not taking for granted what we have. And Yet, I think this text makes clear, this is not only so that we can have more friends, although that's a cool byproduct. The goal is not that we have more people who will attend our Super Bowl parties, although that's fun too. What we see here is that this is relationship for the sake of the gospel. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the last one, the fourth characteristic of an unwasted ministry. In an unwasted ministry, there's a constant focus on fighting sin and pursuing holiness. So we come together 
and we steward these relationships not only so we have people around us, but so we can speak the gospel of God into one another's lives, so we can encourage one another to fight sin and to pursue holiness. This is how Paul describes his ministry, that he was helping them to fight their sin and to live the way that God has called them to live. And it's not something he only taught, it's something he says he modeled. Verse 10, you were witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to give you the gospel. I'm going to give you myself. And I'm going to live with you in such a way that when you see my life, you see an example that's worth following. Oh, that that would be my prayer as a pastor, but oh, that that would be our prayer, all of us, right? That I want to live in such a way that my brothers and sisters can see an example of Christ in me. It's a high calling. Paul says, I was a leader who called those around me to live like me because I was living like Christ. We see it in verse 11. You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, we encouraged you, we charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. So we had the mother metaphor. Gentle, sacrificial, faithful. And now we have the father metaphor responsible for lovingly yet firmly setting expectations and examples. Paul says to the church, I am like a father instructing his children toward holiness. And his efforts aren't flippant. Notice he gives us three verbs. He doesn't say, I told you to walk in a manner worthy of God. No, he says, I exhorted you. I encouraged you. I charged you. If you think that your identity as a child of God is something you can treat flippantly, then you don't understand this verse. We are charged this way. And friends, we should charge one another. Walk in a manner worthy of God. And this is a theme throughout the letter. Chapter 4, he says, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. God has called us to live differently, to parent differently, to work differently, to relax differently, to spend our money differently, to love righteousness and to hate sin. But we could waste it. We could waste this stewardship and not care whether or not our brother or sister is stuck in sin, not care that their marriage is falling apart, not care that they're hurting. Or we could commit to pursuing one another, loving one another, standing for one another. Hebrews says, verse chapter 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is our call, to love each other that way. To be the guard in front of our brother or sister that keeps them from falling into the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will tell us, do it. 
right? And we need those around us who will stand in the way and say, no, it's not the way of God. The question is, have you given people permission to do that for you? Have you surrounded yourself with people who will speak the truth to you? Let me turn it the other way. You may have brothers and sisters around you who are ready for that, who are eager for you to do this for them. Do you love the people around you enough to help them, to know them, to have hard conversations with them? I hope you have relationships that function in this way, and if you don't, I hope you would find them among us. The church is a protection, a guard. This is how we don't waste it. We love each other this way. It's a high calling. And if this feels like a rebuke, that's not necessarily my heart. And, and if it is, I include myself in it. We have a stewardship. Will we be faithful? bold with the gospel, making God our treasure, living and growing together, fighting sin and pursuing holiness. It feels heavy on what we should do, doesn't it? Let me add one point that's not on your notes. It comes from chapter 5. An unwasted ministry, there's a recognition that we cannot do it on our own power. We need the power and the grace of God. So we see the calling, we see our responsibilities, and we run to God for the power and the ability to fulfill it. I'll end with a benediction you hear often. But I love that it's a benediction that comes on the heels of these strong exhortations for us. Paul ends the letter saying, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. May our God, who is over all things, give us the faith, power, and the strength to live out his calling so that at the end of our time together, we can say with confidence, it was not wasted. To the glory of God. Would you join me in prayer? God, I, I know, I'm confident that our coming together, not only today, but as a church, is not an accident. But this is something that you have done. And God, I long for us to steward what you have given us well. And I think we, we, were, we can all be honest and say, we wish things were different there was more of us, that there was different opportunities. But these are the ones you've given us. Would you help us to be faithful? For the glory of your name, for the sake of your gospel, for the good of one another. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing together before we're dismissed.